And so just so you kind of know where we're going over the next couple weeks, so uh, we will, next week Russ will preach from Revelation 19. Um, Christmas Eve we'll do Revelation 12, so we're going to start getting out of order a little bit. And then after Christmas, Russ will do the two Sundays after Christmas. He's going to go backwards in the book to the letters at the front end and take a, take a few of those letters and, and dig into that. And then in January, uh, when we return back to kind of a normal schedule, we'll, we'll start to settle back into Romans there in mid-January and finish out Romans. So Revelation 5, hopefully you're there by now. Um, the question I want to put to you this morning as we start to dig in is, where does your allegiance lie? And, and that's a broad question, and, and maybe it needs some more context. But, but what do you consider worthy, or who do you consider worthy of your allegiance, of your devotion, of your time, your efforts, your, your, your affection? Who is worthy to dictate the way you live your life? That's a big question, isn't it? And it's a question that gets challenged every day, whether you realize it or not. Who am, I, who am I allowing to dictate my life? Who am I revolving my decisions around? Who's worthy of that? Where's my allegiance fly? In Revelation 5 this morning, we're going we're gonna to dive into that because at the heart of the, uh, the, this chapter is there's one worthy. One. And so as we've been in this, this book, there's a few things I, I threw out last week. I won't go as in detail in them, but I want to recap them by way of framing the book for you and how to study this book, because we're not going through the whole book. And so you can get more of these details by watching last week's. So at the beginning of it, I, I pointed out a few things. One, as you go to the book of Revelation, it's oftentimes very intimidating because it's filled with symbols, but it does not have to be an intimidating book. And you don't need someone who's specially trained, like me, to help you understand what's necessary to understand about this book. You are not dependent on me. You are capable of being able to study this and, and understand it on, on levels. Now, what you may benefit from someone who's, who's specially trained is, hey, look here, look here, hey, did you see this? Things like that, right? But, but listen, if you were having to be dependent on a particular person, a particular holy person, right, who, who gets up and tells you what you need to believe, you got a problem. Like, we've all got a problem if that's the case, and we need to run, right? You, you have the scriptures, you can read this, and it's not as intimidating as you think. But here's what would help you as you go through it. One, it's apocalyptic, apocalyptic right? And we talk about that word. It's a type of genre, a type of writing. It was common at the time. It's highly symbolic. Apocalypse, apocalypsis is the Greek word behind it, simply means reveal. This book is about revealing something that is a mystery. Not like a mystery that needs to be solved, but a mystery in the sense that something that was previously not known but now God is revealing it, right? That, that, that's what that word means. Apocalypse, it's revealing. So this book, this letter, is about revealing something that God in time is now saying, I want this to be known, right? It's highly symbolic. Symbols have meaning, but the only way symbols have meaning is if they're tied to something in reality. So when John is writing and he's using symbolism, or when someone else is writing a book that's similar in genre, it's apocalyptic, like Daniel or Ezekiel from your Old Testament, and they use symbols, those symbols, in order for them to have meaning, have to be based on something in reality. 
And it would only be meaningful to the readers of this letter if they understood what the symbols meant. So we can assume that when John's writing these symbols, he, he knows his readers will understand the symbols. And sometimes he helps them with the symbols, like we'll see this morning. And other times he'll say, hey, let the reader understand. For instance, like the mark of the beast and the number that's 666, right? He'll say, let the reader understand, which means they should know who it is. Let that sit for a moment. Because if they didn't know who it is, and John's saying to them, let the reader understand, or let the listener understand, where's the meaning in this? Right? They, they can't understand if it's not something that John would be able to say, let, let the listener or let the reader understand. They should be going, oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Right? So symbols have meaning, and, and the only way this letter is meaningful to the people it was written to is if those symbols had meaning to them. So when we go to interpret this book, we can't take from these symbols something that it never meant for them. Right? We can't start putting pieces together going, well, I think this sounds like this in my modern day. They didn't have our modern day back then. The symbols were tied to something back then. Or the third point I want to put before you, as I did last week, is it's highly rooted in Old Testament. You cannot accurately understand the book of Revelation if you don't dig into your Old Testament. You have to. Uh, the, the significant portion of this book is either quoting Old Testament scriptures or alluding to Old Testament scriptures, and that is intentional. This book is largely about God bringing his just judgment on unbelieving, rebellious Israel. So therefore, it makes sense for John to go back to the Old Testament often and say, see, look, this is where God said this. See, look, this is where he said this. Now we're building on this. So you have to dig into the Old Testament. So we are going to do that this morning, but I'm going to tell you, um, you should follow your Bible's footnotes. So if you have a decent Bible, even if it's not a study Bible, it's going to have superscripts or subscripts, and it's going to have footnotes and little numbers or letters. And if you go to the bottom, or maybe it's in the middle of your column, if you have a double column, right? And it's going to tell you some suggested verses. And that's what the, the people translating your Bible just said, hey, this might be taken from here. This is a direct quote from here. And so as we go through Revelation 5 this morning, you'll have a lot of that. And I would say as you're studying, just go look those things up, especially the Old Testament ones. What, what is it that's connecting it to this? And then what was, it, what was being said in the Old Testament, right? So those are the three things I want to just frame before you as you, you go to study this book or read this book. It, it, it's not impossible. It's not beyond your reach. You absolutely can understand the, 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 the essential things that John wanted his original readers to understand and that we need to understand. So Revelation 5, here's where we're going this morning. Jesus alone is worthy to deliver God's justice because Jesus alone delivered God's salvation. I'm going to leave that up for a moment and give us a run-up to, to, to chapter 5 because chapter 1 is where John says at the very beginning, he says, hey, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right? He, he's gotten a vision and he tells us these are things that must soon come to pass. Emphasis on the, these are things that must soon happen. He repeats that throughout the letter and, the, and, and this book. These are things that must soon come to pass. He's writing to Christians who are being persecuted under the Roman government. And if they weren't being persecuted, they would soon be persecuted. And so he's writing to Christians to encourage them to continue to persevere in faithful obedience to Jesus Christ, even in the midst of persecution. And he's encouraging them by saying, hey, these are some things that are about to soon take place. 
Jesus alone is worthy to deliver God's justice because Jesus alone delivered God's salvation. So the next part of the chapter one was, was John seeing this vision of Jesus and Jesus was saying, hey, write these words down. I want you to deliver them to the seven churches. And he names these seven churches that were actual churches at that time. Pause. This, this is a letter. We got to keep that in mind. This is not just a book written by a guy who was on drugs and had some visions. Pause. Okay, because there's religions based on that. Okay? This is a book where the Spirit inspired this, this, this apostle, John, gave him some visions, and, and Jesus, in these visions, is saying, I want you to send this and write this down, these words, to these particular churches. It's tied in history. Right? This is a pastoral letter written to these churches. These churches are of varying different types of maturity levels, right? And then after he, chapter, the, the second part of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 3 is those letters, which you guys will look at um, the first uh, week after Christmas and then January 2nd, the first week of the year. Right? And then in chapter 4, we looked last night, we, we moved to the next vision. So remember, this book is not so much about trying to figure out what comes next in history, it's not so much about trying to figure out the sequence or the chronology of things, but it's about what John saw next or what John heard next. He's not, he's not necessarily trying to tell us, and then this will happen, and then this will happen, and then followed by this, then this will happen. He's telling us what he saw and what he heard next. All right, so the next thing that he saw was the heavens opened up and he, he goes up there and he says, I was in the spirit. So he's in this vision, this trance-like state. And he goes up and he's now in this spot where he sees the throne room of God. And we looked at this throne room of God and we saw that, that, that God is sovereign. And everybody surrounding the throne of God, every creature worshiped him. Right? And so this vision that, that, that John had of the throne room continues in chapter 5. Now the vision from chapter 4 goes all the way through at least chapter 12, or up to chapter 12. And then he starts a new one, or there's, there's like a break in it, right? But, but from chapter 4 all the way to the end of the book are the unfoldings of what happens in chapter 5. Last week we said, have you ever wondered what it, what it means when, we, when Jesus told us to pray things like, hey, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven? What we get in the book of Revelation is a glimpse of God's will in heaven and how it's going to be played out on earth. We get the cosmic picture as well as the earthly picture. And so the things that we're seeing in chapter 4 and then today in chapter 5 are things that are t going to be taking place in heaven or did take place in heaven. It was future to John at the very least, right? And that they would then be unfolding. So shall we jump into chapter 5? Well, let's do it. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And so here we, we, we see now he's still in the throne room. Remember there was this one that was seated on the throne, right? Now he sees, he sees that one who's seated on the throne. In his right hand he has a scroll. And that scroll, John can tell it has writing on both sides. That's unusual. It was not common to write on the, the front and the back of a scroll, but it, it, it happened, right? In fact, this, this could very well be rooted in Old Testament stuff. Now, I'm not going to take you there on these issues, but this is Ezekiel chapter 2, where Ezekiel also saw a, a scroll that was written on two different sides, right? And, and so he sees this scroll, and then it's sealed with seven seals. Now, what likely is about to play out here is rooted in context and culture. This is not an uncommon scene that John would be seeing. It would have been familiar to him. It would have been culturally familiar to him. This is a legal scene. 
This, this, this scroll that has seven seals on it, it is very similar to what would have been like a last will and testament that had to be, in that culture, had to be brought to the court and it was sealed with seals. Usually it was a seven-sealed document. And, and someone had to die, right? The, the person who was leaving the last will and testament had to die. And then someone who was alive had to open it, the executor. Right? But it was a specific person who had to open it. Now the seals were brought to the court unbroken so that they could see that what was contained in this last will and testament was not tampered with. And so then the, the, once the, they could tell that the seals were not tampered with, then the one who was worthy, the executor, the one who had been designated as the one who should be able to open this, would then open it and then would start to read off the wishes and the desires or whatever would come next. That's what he's seeing here. A last will and testament. And now you, you, you've got these seven seals. Now we also talked about last week though, with highly symbolic books like this, numbers oftentimes mean something. Seven, you, you know it. Seven means fullness, completeness, perfection, right? So, and, and, and the scroll written on both sides, comprehensive. So whatever's contained in the scroll, we'll talk about that in just a moment. Whatever's contained in the scroll is comprehensive. It's full. It's complete. Now, before we go any further, what's contained in the scroll? We won't, we won't get to look at that this morning because it starts in chapter 6, where, where the, the scrolls start to be broken. And what you see as the scrolls are broken is God's just judgment being poured out on unbelieving, rebellious Israel on the earth. So this scroll contains this just judgment of God. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. Not anyone can open it. It has to be the one who's designated, the one who is worthy to do so. Let's keep going. Verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. All right, so, so in this vision that John ha is having where he's in this throne room and, and, and this scroll is held in the, the hand of God, okay, I'm also going to call him Ancient of Days, store that, right? The Ancient of Days is holding this scroll. It's got seven seals. It's written on both sides. This angel comes and proclaims, who's worthy to open it? And John sees that there's no one. No one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth. And so he weeps. And he weeps. Because no one's worthy. John knew what was in the scroll. He had some idea of what was coming. This scroll was something John was longing for. And the followers of Christ are longing for. And yet if no one's able to open it, then what's contained in that scroll wouldn't be able to come about. No one was found worthy. So he's weeping. Let's go to verse 5. And one of the elders, now pause for a moment. Last week in the throne room, we saw that the throne was surrounded by 24 elders. And, and we said that 12 and 12, representing 12 apostles, 12, uh, 12 tribes of Israel, God's people of the Old, Testament, uh, Old Covenant, God's people of the New Covenant, all of the called out people of God, right? They represent that. So one of these elders... One of these elders comes up, verse 5, and he says, Weep no more.
the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. We're going to camp here for a few minutes, and we're going to take, take a journey back to the Old Testament a little bit. So, weep no more, this elder says, because, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, if you have any kind of church background, you probably recognize that, right? But let's say you did not have church background. You didn't grow up in Sunday school. You've never attended church. Today's the first day you've been in a church ever, a Christian church. You're going, What? What is a, a lion of the tribe of Judah? Maybe you have some foggy knowledge of, of the 12 tribes of Israel, but you're going, a lion? This stuff is crazy, right? The root of David? What is he talking about? The readers or the listeners, if it was being read, would have known immediately. They would have known. Lion of the tribe of Judah is a reference to this one who was promised to come and rule. Now, let me show you that. This is Genesis chapter 49, Verse 9, this is the end of the book of Genesis. You remember Joseph in the multicolored coat, and he had those brothers that were jealous, right? Well, at the end, there's this great reunion, right? And Jacob, their dad, is blessing them as an older man would on his way out of life. And typically, he would reserve the, the blessing or the passing on of the inheritance to the older. Now, that would have been Reuben. Now, Reuben doesn't get it. Reuben had some sin in his life that you can read about in Genesis that ruled him out. Judah's the fourthborn. It, 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 it got to Judah that the blessing gets passed in this way. And here's what Jacob says about Judah. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, from my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? This is what John's referencing. From Judah came a person who had the right to rule. If you were to be a king in Israel, you had to come from the tribe of Judah. You, you, you had the right to rule, the authority to rule, if you were of the tribe of Judah. And then there were certain families, right? Because God made covenants with David and said, from your throne, there shall be a king always, right? So we're looking for someone who is from the tribe of Judah. And this elder says to, to, um, to John, hey, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Oh. Oh, and then he goes a step further, and he says, the root of David. Now, I'm not going to show you this just for time, but Isaiah 11, verse 1. Isaiah 11, verse 1, and I believe it's Jeremiah 23, verse 5. So Isaiah 11, verse 1, and Jeremiah 23, verse 5 are references where you will hear about the root of David, um, the branch of, of Jesse. It's, it says Jesse. Jesse is David's dad. So Isaiah 11, 1, and Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Now with that, I want to give you one more thing because you're going to read that and you might have some questions. Psalm 110, verse 1 will be the other piece of that. Psalm 110, verse 1. But these are things that, that, that the elder is saying to, to John, the line of the tribe of Judah, Judah, the root of David, he is conquered. There is, there is this one. Now, this is one God has promised and he has foretold. He says, that one, he has conquered so that he can open the scroll. So how did he conquer? Now, we're talking about Jesus at this point. We know that, right? We can piece that together, but we'll get more details in a moment. But we're talking about Jesus. How did he conquer? going to tell us in just a moment he was slain he died and in dying he rose from the dead he conquered we'll dig into that minute right because they're going to make a connection but because he conquered he did that so that he could open the scrolls with the seven seals it was necessary for Jesus to do what he did for God to do what he did through Christ it was necessary so that what follows from this scroll could be passed down. All right, let's keep going. 
Verse 6. All right? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. All right, some weird stuff again, right? Seven horns, seven eyes, a lamb that's standing. All right, again, rooted in Old Testament, and in this case, also some previous writings of John, right? I saw a lamb. Now, again, if you're familiar with church stuff, you probably go, Jesus, Lamb of God, I've heard that. We sing about it multiple times this morning, right? Let me show you where it comes from. This is Isaiah 53, verse 7, several centuries before Jesus ever showed up. He's talking about this servant, the, this, this one that God would send, who would be for his people. And he says, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not its mouth. Go back even further. If you know some of your, your, your Bible history, you know that after uh, when the people were about to come out of Egypt, God instituted the Passover meal, right? And they were to have this particular lamb that, that had no spot, no blemish, and they were to slaughter this lamb, and they were to eat this lamb, but they were to take the, the blood of the lamb and put the blood over the doorposts. And so those who had the blood of the lamb over their doorposts, when the destroyer came, the 10th plague, right, to take the firstborn son, that destroyer would pass over those who had the blood of the lamb, okay? But look what John does. This is John writing his gospel. Same guy that's writing the book of Revelation wrote a gospel, and here's what he tells us in John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, this is John the Baptist he's telling us about. He, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says it again in John chapter 1, verse 35 and 36. The next day again, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. So when, when John in his vision sees this lamb who is standing, it's significant that the lamb is standing, and it's significant that the lamb appears to have been slain. He can tell that lamb was slain. It was offered as a sacrifice, and yet here it is, standing. This lamb, we go on, and back in Revelation, he, he has seven horns. Right? Horns in, in, in apocalyptic literature often is about ruling or authority to rule. Daniel has visions in his book about these, these beasts that have horns and they were going to rule for a certain amount of time and, and sometimes those horns represent rulers. But again, how many horns do we have? There's not seven gods. Seven means fullness, completeness, perfection. Horns are about ruling or the authority rule. This lamb who is standing, who appears to have been slain, has the right to rule. And his right to rule is full and complete. Now, now hold that thought, because we're going to go to Daniel later, right? But he has seven horns, so this is a, a lamb that's going to rule, right? And with seven eyes, again, seven, fullness, complete. Eyes oftentimes are about the, the omniscience, the all-knowing, or the, the all-presence of God, right? Eyes, all-seeing eyes. And yet, he says, the seven eyes, he tells us, these are the seven spirits of God. Now, if you remember from last week, we saw seven spirits of God. And we saw it in chapter 1. 
right? And we went to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, and I showed you there were seven descriptions of the Spirit of God. So it's not that there's seven spirits, but it's the fullness of the Spirit of God. But why are the seven spirits of God here represented as eyes, and in chapter 4 it was torches, and in chapter 1 it was something else? I don't really know, but here's what I've observed. In chapter 4, the seven torches are associated with the one seated on the throne. In chapter 5, the seven eyes, which are said to be the spirits, are associated with the Lamb. Different description because of different association. God the Father, the Ancient of Days, God the Son, the Lamb. Perhaps there's a difference there. I don't know. doesn't necessarily really matter. But, w- but what about that part? It's the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, let's put some pieces together. John sees in heaven... In this throne room, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb who was slain, he has the right to rule, and the seven spirits of God are sent down to all the earth. Now, this is Jesus, and John's having a vision of Jesus, not future. This is current. This is John seeing what's, what's going on in heaven. Jesus is in heaven at this point. When did that take place? When did Jesus who had been slain, but now is standing because he was resurrected, when did he get to heaven? It wasn't immediately after his resurrection. Because after his resurrection, he appeared to more than 500 eyewitnesses, having already been resurrected. Acts chapter 1, he appears to several of his disciples, and he's, he's telling them, hey, I want you to go and wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit of God comes upon you in power. Right? And then you're going to be my witnesses in all of Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And then at the end of chapter 1, they see Jesus going up on the clouds. And he goes up on the clouds. Okay? And they're looking, and then this angel says, why are you looking up? Right? Where was he going? Where is up? He's going to the throne room of God. He's going to the very presence of God the Father. And that that ascension of Jesus is his crowning as king. See, he's, he's died. He's been the suffering servant. He's raised from the dead. He's conquered, right? And then he's now raising up. That is him going to take his place beside the Father. He's going to take his place as rightful king. And so now John sees him in heaven. John hasn't seen him since that time. Right? And he sees him in heaven. That's where he went to rule, to, to, to be able to, to sit beside his father. And what did he do when he went up? He said, he said at the end of the, the Gospels, hey, um, the, right now you baptize with water, but there's going to come a time where you'll be baptized with the Spirit. In, in Acts chapter 1, the, 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 the Jesus that was there, he said, Jesus said, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until the, the power comes upon you, the Spirit comes in power upon you. What happened in Acts chapter 2? Holy Spirit came in power on the day of Pentecost. The seven spirits of God, the fullness of the Spirit, sent out into all the earth. That has happened. It's already happened when John's seeing this vision. Jesus has already gone up and he's sent the spirit which he said he would do. John 14, I have to go so that I can send another like me, a helper, a comforter, a counselor. 
right? He's done that. This is that Jesus. John is helping us see. This is the one who, who went up to heaven on the clouds. He is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's, he's ruling. He's reigning, right? He's the one who was sending the Spirit, and he did just like he said. That's what John's seeing. All right, let's keep going. Verse 7. And he went and he took, so Jesus, this lamb, he went and he took the, the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So we see the, the lamb, Jesus, goes and takes the scroll from the right hand of God the Father, or the Ancient of Days, seated on the throne, right? He goes and he takes it. And, and as he takes it, the, the, the things, the, the creatures surrounding the throne, they all worship. And then John sees um, the, the, in these creatures' hands, some of these creatures' hands, uh, a harp, right, used for, for worship, right, and golden bowls full of incense. And incense is, again, you can see symbolism in the Old Testament of incense, and we're told incense are prayers going up before God. And John tells us these are the prayers of the saints. Which saints? I think that question is answered in chapter 6. When we see under the, 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 the altar in one of the, one of the seals being broken, the, 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 the martyrs, people who have been followers of Christ, who have been, who have been killed for their faith, and they're crying out, when? When will you bring judgment on those who have done this? I think it's those prayers. Because what Jesus is about to do as he opens it up is justice is coming for those who have been persecuted. Soon. Soon from John's day. All right, let's keep going. Verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The rest of the song goes on. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Let's pull on a few things. So here's their song. You're worthy. There's no one worthy, remember? No one in heaven or on earth or under earth is worthy. But this one, this lamb who has been slain, he's worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. But why is he worthy? For, because you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Jesus' death is what made him worthy to be able to come and open this scroll which contains the just judgment of God on faithful, unbelieving Israel, which will be poured out on all the earth. Not anyone can just go and open that scroll. It takes one who's worthy. Who's worthy? The one who was slain and the one who by his blood ransomed people for God. Now, just this is what, something I would just put there for you to chew on. Jesus was slain, so he is death, and in his death, John John sees these people describing it, and they say, you ransomed people for God. Ransomed people for God. Not you will. Ransomed. When did the ransom take place? At the death. But wait a minute, but, but, but when Jesus died, at least in, in, in talking about history and talking about time, right? when Jesus died, not everybody who's going to believe has believed. Not everybody who, who is going to experience the ransoming has experienced it yet because the ransoming is not based on believing. 
believing is how you experience the ransom, how you get the ransom applied to you. But when Jesus died, he did everything that was necessary for that ransom to be complete. It was accomplished. When he hung on the cross, before he gave himself up, he said, it is finished. Nothing left. Jesus came and he, he ransomed people. He did not come just for the possibility of people maybe being ransomed. He's already ransomed them when he died. And when we believe, that gets applied to us. Now chew on that for a bit. And the people that he's ransomed, they come from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. The book of Revelation is one of the most ethnically diverse books that you will find. Because it tells us that Jesus has come to ransom a people for himself, and that people includes people from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. And in my mind, I go back to Tower of Babel. I go back to where, where God in his judgment scattered these people and confused their languages. And then the, 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 the back picture of Tower of Babel, Deuteronomy 32 verses 8 and 9 tells us that in scattering them, God divided them up according to the number of the sons of God. But Israel, he inherited for himself. And through Israel, he was going to go and win back all the nations that rejected him. And in Jesus ransoming people for God, he is winning back people from all of those nations. Not every single one, but he's winning people back from every single one of the nations, every single one of the tribes and languages. All right, we got to keep going. Verse 10. Oh, we did that. Uh, oh, no, no. Yeah, verse 10. A kingdom of priests. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Exodus 19, verse 6. God tells the people of Israel, I'm bringing you now. You will be a kingdom and priests. They were to be the light to the nations. They were to represent God to all the other nations. First Peter, Peter picks us up and he talks about the people of God under the new covenant and they are to be a kingdom and priest to God. And John sees this one and the song is included and it says you ransom people so that they could be kingdom and priests to our God. This is God's people. All right, we got Keep on moving here, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, number, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Myriads is 10,000. That's what the word means, 10,000. So that's 10,000s of 10,000s and thousands of thousands. Right? He goes on in verse 12. And in verse 12, he says, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, two, two persons, the one who sits on the throne and the lamb, okay, to both of them be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And ever. And before we wrap up with verse 14, I want to take us to Daniel. Because all the stuff I just flew through there is right out of Daniel's vision. So you can hold your place in Revelation if you want. We're going to look at Daniel 7, a few verses here. We're going to look at Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10 first, and then 13 and 14. So Daniel gets this vision, and this vision includes the throne room of God. As I looked, Daniel says, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Ancient of Days is the one who sits on the throne in, in Revelation. 
His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. That was similar stuff to what we saw last week, right? Lots of fire surrounding the throne. Verse 10, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And look, do you, do you remember what we just read in Revelation? And myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands worshiped and served him. Daniel sees the same thing. A thousand thousand served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment. Oh, what, what did? The court. This is a legal scene taking place, right? And, and from it is going to come judgment, which is why I think that scroll includes the just judgment of God. And the books were opened. All right? We skip a few verses in verse 13 of Daniel 7. And Daniel says, I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven. Wait, what? With what? With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Now, the son of man is a title that gets picked up for Jesus in the New Testament. Daniel seeing this several centuries before. And he says, with the clouds came one like the son of man. Now, where's Daniel's vision currently taking place? In a throne room. He's just seen God in throne. Now, how does the Son of Man get to the throne room? He comes on the clouds. When did Jesus go up on the clouds? The ascension. When he was going to, to be coronated, when he was going to be given his rightful place to rule. There came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Verse 14. And to him, to who? To the Son of Man the one who came up on the clouds. To him was given what? Dominion and glory and a kingdom. That sounds like ruling to me. Horns represent ruling. John told us in Revelation, he saw this lamb that had seven horns, right? That all people's nations and language should serve him. Wait, the end of Revelation 13 just told us that he ransomed people from all tribes, languages, and nations, right? His dominion, the, the, the son of man's dominion, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That sounds like a pretty fulfilled and complete kingdom to me. That sounds like a, a perfect kingdom to me, kind of like what seven horns might represent. This is what Daniel sees, the Ancient of Days coming up into the clouds. What John is seeing in John's day had already taken place. He's seeing it in heaven. John wasn't seeing a vision in chapter 5 of what was still to come for him. Or for us. That had already taken place. Now what follows chapter 5 is future at least to John's day. Back in Revelation, the last verse, 14, the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So here's the, the question we were wrestling with. Who's your, who, who, where's your allegiance lie? Where does your allegiance lie? Jesus alone is worthy. To deliver. That's what we see in chapter 5. It's about the lamb being worthy to take the seal and break the seals and open the scroll because he was slain. So, so the first thing I, I'd put before you and I'd say is it's helpful when we're reading things that we are removed from culturally to put ourselves in their shoes. If I'm hearing the book of Revelation read, if I'm in one of those churches that, that John listed in chapter 1, and it's being read, and I'm experiencing persecution, or I know it's coming, and I know people who have, how would this hit me? How would it hit me as an encouragement? Because that's what it was meant. And in chapter, what we know is chapter 5, as that part's being read, we hear about the scroll. And we understand that the scroll includes the, the just judgment of God. 
and we see the lamb and the lion of Judah, and we know that that's the, the Savior who we are faithfully, obediently worshiping and following and living our lives for, and we see that he is worthy. And I might need to be reminded in the face of persecution that the one for whom I am being persecuted is worthy because he was slain. And I might need to be reminded that I have not yet suffered to the point of death. And even if I do, Job would say, though he slay me, I will yet praise him. I might need to hear that if I'm struggling to continue to persevere and following because things are hard or a sickness has come my way or, or disease or, or pressure or, in their day, persecution. I need to hear that. He's worthy. And I need to hear that he's worthy to open the scroll and, and break the seals. And I need to hear what's going to follow because the prayers of the saints in chapter 6 are calling out for justice. The next thing I'd put before us is if in order to be worthy to bring about the just judgment of God and the, the ransoming of a people of God, in order to be worthy to do that, it was necessary for God to send the Son, Jesus, God in human flesh, and it was necessary for him to be perfectly obedient in his life, which we fail at doing, and it was necessary for him to die in the place of sinful, guilty people so that he could die to the power of sin, and it was necessary for, for God to raise him from the dead so that he could conquer sin and death, the result of sin. If it was necessary for that to make Jesus worthy, to ransom, to deliver just judgment, what in the world makes me think I can contribute anything to that? What in the world makes me think that I can somehow live my life in obedience to God in my best effort and I will contribute to the worthiness of the Lamb? I don't stand next to Him. I fall down next to Him. I fall down before Him. There is no one worthy to deliver God's justice because Jesus alone delivered God's salvation. If I put anyone else in that place to share it, even if it's partial, I obey, partially, whatever. I do this and then add this, whatever. If I put anyone else in that place, my allegiance is no longer on the one who lived and died and who reigns. Last thing I'd put before us this morning, I don't know how this will hit you, but I'm saying it anyway, um, is this. To John's readers and listeners, that were being persecuted, they were not being put to death for following Jesus. They weren't being put to death for worshiping Jesus. Rome had no problem with who you worshiped. You can worship whoever you want, so long as you also worshiped Caesar. Christians were being put to death by Rome, not because they worshiped Jesus, but because they refused to also worship Caesar. They refused to bow down before the state, the government, the ruler. Their allegiance was solely to Christ. Okay, here it is. Follower of Christ, your allegiance ultimately is solely to Christ. And if the state, the government, whatever that is, whatever country that is, competes for your allegiance, you are participating in idolatry. 
And if the state, the government, whatever that looks like, tries to dictate to you, to us, to do things, to not do things that would be in disobedience to the one who we have allegiance to, Christ. We must and only serve Christ at whatever cost, even if it's at great cost. Because only Jesus is worthy.